Hey guys, this is Keir from RugbyStrengthCoach.com. This is episode number 36 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. Today's episode is going to be with a regular friend and contributor to both the podcast and the Rugby Strength Coach community. That is James Smith. If you don't know who James is, he initially started out in the US Navy where he was a Navy SEALs trialist. And it was through those experiences that he became a strength coach, first working with other members within the military and then branching out into elite level sport. Not only has he worked under Buddy Morris at the University of Pittsburgh American Football, he's headed up the performance department at Portugal Rugby and he's also consulted with elite level track and field athletes. James now applies his trade as a sports consultant to elite level sporting teams, including NFL clubs, and he's the author of two strength and conditioning books, notably Applied Sprint Training and his new book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching. I decided to get him on Skype and ask him some questions about the contents of the book and also some issues that have been on my mind. This includes how we can optimize tactical schemes and influence them as strength coaches, the idea that mental toughness is a science fiction or an illusion, and what we really need to do as coaches if we're going to improve psychological preparation for sport. We also talk about the value of knowledge versus experience and creating sporting culture, how clubs should be organized and how to create behavioral change within those organizations. Make sure you visit this episode of the podcast on the Rugby Strength Coach blog and you will find a link within that page. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice on all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word TRIAL. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just £1. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it, there's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. So you were talking about yeah. tactics. The, the instantiation of them. Yeah is predicated upon many different factors, some of which are the sensory motor process, the analytical, analytical computation ability of the individual, which is predicated upon both what you are able to memorize as well as assimilate. So there is a, a, a vast cornucopia of knowledge involved with that component alone. The uh, psychological preparation that allows you to maintain focus under pressure, in addition to any of the other attributes as they pertain to a specific context of the competition, you know, the relentlessness, resolve, aggression, that which often gets glossed over as the science fiction known as mental toughness, which, you know, I, I argue is a, it's a falsity. It's, it's, you know, in the same way that people throw around you know, Merry Christmas, that's also based upon a falsity because there's nobody, there's no fat bearded man with a, with reindeers flying around and landing on rooftops. But what? so, so much of the world, so much of the world continues to perpetuate this myth. You know, the Easter bunny, the tooth fairy, all these things that are science fiction. And so you add mental toughness to that group. And finally, we arrive at the, the physical attributes. So, 
you know, I'm talking about analytical, intellectual, psychological, none of which requires physical motion. Once physical motion comes into play, not now we have to account for biomotor, biodynamic, and bioenergetic properties. And all of these together are the substrates of tactical execution, one of which is technical execution. Because as soon as motion occurs, now we're talking about some technical manifestation of motion. And so the basis of tactical understanding must, although it does not in any sports educational system I'm aware of, address all of those, such as to fully qualify an individual who seeks to become a head coach. So only the strategy and let's call it Let's call it elementary kinematics. So kinematics gives us position and derivatives of position in the case of velocity, acceleration, and jerk. Not mobilizing forces. Once we enter those into the equation, we're now talking of kinetics. So only kinematics, position, and the derivatives of position in, a, in an elementary sense because it would, it would also be way too ambitious to consider that that head coaches actually have an understanding of kinematics. An elementary sense might be simply, and this is where, you know, you pick, pick the sport in question. Uh, what would the position in the case of a team sport, what would the position of each individual be in a given tactical scenario? So when we're, if we're talking about rugby, we were either in the set piece or in phase play. And of course, we have transitions between the two. And the, the laws of the game dictate what is achievable. So for me, th there, is, there is so much more to be gained, for instance, by listening to the physicist David Deutsch than any sport coach on planet Earth. Because when you talk about the, the premise of knowledge and good explanation and information systems, I mean, this is what we're talking about here. And so... Same as if any conceivable physical operation that is not prohibited by the laws of physics is achievable given the right knowledge. Because the laws of physics, similar in the analogy I'm making to the laws of rugby, dictate what is permissible. Yeah. So uh, we know that uh, if, if we were simply tasking someone with grasping an understanding of the laws of rugby – not now we can talk about that in the context of, okay, we've got a test coming up in, in school and what's involved with gaining some knowledge if, if it's only the laws of rugby. Because if, if you have an understanding of these substrates that I refer to that are entirely uncontroversial in their relevance, they're, they're irrefutable. No one can argue the claims that I've made. So a knowledge of these substrates simply coupled with an understanding of what is and what is not prohibited in terms of the laws, that gives you the finest head coach that you could possibly ask for. Because now I know what is and what is not allowed, and I also know everything that there is to know about the substrates of all competitive success. It, it's a foregone conclusion that the creativity and the knowledge necessary to devise creative tactical schemes is implicit in this individual who has a grasp of all fundamental components. Presumably with some imagination thrown in. Hence the creativity that I mentioned. Yes, yeah. 100%. And so, and so once again, we shouldn't talk about any of this in the context of well, this is what anybody should expect to be good in if they give it their best effort. It's not that way. And that's why not everyone is going to be a theoretical physicist and a neurosurgeon and a, 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 a top-ranked athlete in any given discipline, no matter how hard they try. You have to have the requisite aptitudes. And so that, that must be recognized and if there was to be a sudden paradigm shift, say, based upon enough 
acceptance of what I write about in the book, immediately the bulk of the world's coaches would lose their jobs. Now, it's not because necessarily they don't have the intellect. It would be more so because they don't have the knowledge. And so we distinguish between the two relative to, we could look at intellect as being a synonym of genetic morphobiomechanics, yet those morphobiomechanics that you have received genetically are different from what you will be able to achieve athletically based upon the preparatory needs. So intellect is more of a potential it's more of a potential than knowledge. And this is why, you know, we, we have all these analogies of you, you know, I use if the two, if the two irrefutably most intelligent people in the world made a baby, but the baby was restricted to life in a bubble with a very controlled introduction of stimuli, even though that's provided all the genes and made it through, even though that's potentially one of the smartest human beings on earth, they could have the knowledge of a person who grew up in a bubble, whereas you could have someone who intellectually take intelligence quotient as one example, an unbiased intelligent quotient who could travel the world and spend time with a variety of knowledgeable individuals. But if they don't have the intellectual aptitude, they might have marginally comparable knowledge as the the child in the bubble, because all you have to do is give that child in the bubble maybe one piece of information and their high potential for knowledge is immediately absorbing the information in a way that the other person who just does not have the same cognitive ability, it, it's beyond their potential. It doesn't matter until, you know, in the future of individuals such as Ray Kurzweil are correct that nanotechnology can give us all access to the cloud, you know, within our brains and take away the, the physical, you know, cell phone out of the picture. Now that, that that's a some of it of a game changer. But until that happens, these aptitudes have to be recognized in the same way as it is naive and irresponsible to, to tell some young person, you can be whatever you want to be in life. That's not true because not everybody can do what Usain Bolt did and, and, you know, pick your, you know, pick, pick your high performing athlete. Not everybody can do that no matter what you do. And so, Neither should, neither should, even though it currently is due to gerontocracy and nepotism, even though it currently the idea of being a head coach effectively is open to the world, given the right connections and the right amount of time and the right people you know, none of which have anything to do with knowledge, it's open to, to anybody. And that's why anyone with the right types of objective criticism could go around the world and identify all of the incompetence in the world of sports, which they would be much more challenged to do if they were to go around the world and attempt to find that in, say, the, the world's population of theoretical physicists or neurosurgeons, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So, so, why, so why is that? Why, if we scour the world with the right type of objective, the right type of system of criticism in place to objectively identify who knows what, why is it that the numbers in terms of if we're comparing sport coaches with physicists, with certain types of medical doctors and legal professionals and engineers and, you know, you name it, why is it that it is that, that those with this, the knowledge to even have a, an intelligent conversation of this type would not really have much to argue about if I said, who do you think you're going to find more incompetence in the, the population of these physicists or of these sport coaches based upon this criteria? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Oh, yeah. And that demands recognition and, and problem solving. And such, such is what you know, my efforts have gone into creating this book have served. So you talk about those those aptitudes that are fairly, or the the, the potential for them is fixed. Um, can you talk a bit about mental toughness and how that concept ties into it? And if there are aspects, well, aspects to what people call mental toughness, to what extent can they be developed 
at what stage in life can they be developed and yes. how compatible is their development with physical training i.e can yes. you make someone tough by motherfucking them in the dirt well said a lot, lot of information there you may, you may have to remind me there was there was a handful of questions in there yeah. so what recent studies have revealed is the colossal importance of early, early, early childhood education, pre five years of age, and how much that shapes all life afterwards in such a way that if the right types of information is not introduced during those early stages of life, you'll never be able to attain what would have been attainable had you received it during that early stage. Now, I'm not aware, given that statement and, and others that I could make related to other fields of research, I'm not aware of particularly hard lines that are drawn. What I am aware of is the utter significance that the right type of introduction of information is, initiate, is initiated very, very early. And given the holistic context of if, if we simply speak about what, what makes sense to give any human the, the greatest possibility of experiencing well-being in their lifetime, then we wouldn't leave, we would not leave anything out of that introduction of information that's dosed properly, all of which must encapsulate the full spectrum of psychological, emotional, mental, physical, the derivatives, technical, and so, and so on, commensurate with that individual's aptitude to assimilate. So some of these things, when I explain them, you know, I said this in a lecture of mine on the on the website. I I'm almost find myself getting ready to laugh because I realize I've explained something so obvious that it, it I might even have, I might have just patronized half the people listening. Yet we we then remind ourselves what what I'm talking about is not science fiction, such such as what of a lot of which I criticize is. It's real. It's happening. These problems exist. And therefore, something as simple, simple, such as what is a repeated theme in the book of, of incrementally scaling the introduction of stimuli, it's so practically obvious in my judgment as to the course of action that any individual would take in teaching somebody something new. It's, it's not a far stretch in my mind to, to think about something that say, neither, let's pick a sport that, that neither of us has any direct experience with, you know, let's say curling, right? Yep. The Olympic discipline of curling. It seems to me that it's entirely uncontroversial to state that if you've never curled before, that that coach working with you is going to take a step-by-step -step process ensuring that you don't begin to repeat upon inefficiencies that will lead you down the path of becoming more inefficient. And the same goes for anything else. Yet, when we look at high-level sports, whether it's you know Premiership, Super Rugby, the National Football League, the NBA, what we do not see are manifestations of this, of this straightforward logic that, that passes all intellectual muster, such as, okay, you're learning something new, let's scale it, incremental, one step at a time. So th that covers the young athlete, the young person piece, and what to, what to address, at least that's an overview, in terms of the, the totality of everything that you have in store for yourself in life should be scaled dosed appropriately to what that individual can effectively assimilate very, very early in life. As to the confluence of psychological markers merged with physical ones and, and what you can accomplish psychologically, let's say through a physical means, this is also a topic that I address in the book. The answer is yes. If and this requires a knowledge of the psychological elements 
that we seek to advance, which can then segue nicely into this, this myth of mental toughness. So if I take anyone who operates under the science fiction premise of mental toughness and, and I ask them, that's not good enough. I want you to explain in more detail what you're referring to as. Well, if they have some sense of what they're talking about, they'll be able to, to, to some degree. Now, I can give you some examples of, of what gets glossed over. Tenacity, resolve, relentlessness, durability, aggression, persistence. These are, some are more similar than others in terms of their definitions. These are examples of the substrates that one must have a keen understanding of if they're seeking to bind them and develop them with a physical motion of some kind to kill two birds with one stone in terms of a preparatory objective. So for example, say I deem it that, that these group of athletes are not aggressive enough to realize other attributes that they have in the competitive arena. Well, we know that aggressive is linked to an overcoming act. So if I, as an example, I'm wrong if I'm seeking to establish aggressiveness via subjecting an individual only to overcoming actions in which they must sustain or yield against because there's no overcoming requirement to resist. And this is why if we go around, you know, a thousand playgrounds of the world and, and we see all of the bullies beating up all of the lesser able individuals, those lesser able individuals are not learning aggressiveness. They're constantly being overcome. What they may be learning is durability, resolve. Resolve is undeterred by setbacks. You know, maybe they're learning these qualities, but we're not seeing any aggressive component to someone who is just the receiver of some onslaught. Similarly, if we, if we flip that, someone who's only either in a preparatory scheme or some life context, only overcoming particularly a lesser adversary they're not learning anything about resolve and durability. This is the so-called training park warrior. Sure. You know, it's sort of fill in the blank with all the, all the analogies of the yeah, world. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the give it but can't take it, it's, the, you know, this is what we're talking about. So all of these, you know, that I mentioned and more, self-regulation, the ability to focus, task-specific focus, uh, emotional control, all of these there's about 12 or 15 of them that cover every possible aspect that is glossed over as we need to be mentally tough. And so the, the, now, the reason why it's not only, you know, if it was just a more convenient way to talk about a handful or more of preparatory properties if it was just a more convenient, like, let's say an acronym or a phrase, there, there wouldn't be much to criticize there. But the problem with toughness and mental <clears throat> toughness is it does not exist. So not only is it, let's say someone who has the knowledge to explain what I just explained regarding various psychological attributes, let's, not only would it be incorrect to gloss over them and say, you know, what, I'm just going to say mentally tough instead of these things. Uh, not, I should say, not only would it be lazy for me to pick this one word to encapsulate, it's it's wrong. And and as I've explained in a couple other contexts, my proof for the 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 absence of mental toughness as as having any factual relevance is if we account for what is known scientifically about the human physiological responses to volatility, to danger, to extreme pressure, life-threatening situations. 
we know a lot about these physiological qualities and they're not controversial. We, we understand heart rate, respiration, blood pressure, galvanic skin response, all of which are elevated in what I can explain if you're interested is a chosen stress response because there's actually no such thing as stress either. It's the perception of threat to the homeostasis. Yes, well said. And so if we agree that, yes, a person who is, let's say, very nervous, demonstrating a stress response, highly frightened, all of which would be synonymous with with the antithesis of what most people think of as tough, right? Because if you're tough, you're not having an anxiety attack. You're, you're not having heart palpitations. You're not in a cold sweat. You're focused and you're ready to go. So if we agree, okay, yes, we have a physiological mode of identifying who is experiencing a heightened stress reaction and who is not. Then it, let's take two professions that are also uncontroversially linked to individuals who simply must be tough, as the word implies. So we can look at it in a, in a, in a physical and psychological. We, we can look at ultimate fighting competitors and special operations personnel and trauma room surgeons and um, you know fill in the blank. I, I give some of these examples in the book. So if we just pick any of them, and we say, you know, often what I'll use is a, a Navy SEAL and a ultimate fighting competitor. So anyone who's got any sort of general knowledge w w would not question whether a Navy SEAL or an ultimate fighter is tough. As false as the word is, no one would question that. Of course, you got to be tough to be a Navy SEAL. Of course, you have to be. Well, why? Well, because the SEAL is dealing with life and death and jumping out of planes at 30,000 feet and combat and so on. And the ultimate fighter is getting in there with three ounce gloves in a cage and fighting with another individual. So if we say, OK, agreed, you are not faint of heart if you are engaged in either of these professions. What happens if this is true, if toughness exists? What happens if we're monitoring the physiological markers of an ultimate fighter, of a Navy SEAL, and we switch their roles? So now the Navy SEAL is thrown into the octagon and the ultimate fighter is thrown into combat, you know, life and death combat. Assuredly, vice a very small population of SEALs who practice as fighters and fighters who maybe are a former military – both of those individuals, that, that Navy SEAL who we said, of course, this is a tough individual, they're going to have a heightened stress response. And the fighter in that real-world combat situation or 33,000 feet in the middle of the night with night vision jumping out of a plane, they're going to have a heightened stress response. So if we're only analyzing the data, we're going to see the spikes all over the place of an individual having this anxiety, stress, fear, you know, fill in the blank. And, and if we ask anybody, does this look like the reaction of what you think of as a Navy SEAL? You know, if I don't even tell you what they're going to be involved in, the uneducated public will say, no way. I expect to see a flat line with a Navy SEAL. They're not going to be affected. Similarly, with an ultimate fighter or a trauma room surgeon or a hedge fund broker in New York City or London, these people who deal with extraordinary volatility that just takes on different shapes have a, a focus of steel, particularly to be high performers within their domain. Because let's not make the mistake of saying every Navy SEAL is, is, you know, every Navy SEAL and every fighter and every hedge fund broker and every trauma room surgeon is the equivalent of Jason Bourne. Yeah. No, that's false. And so is the science fiction character in the movie. However, the distinction must be made between the, the falsity of this concept of toughness, which does not exist, and what does exist is training or preparation or conditioning or pick your favorite colloquialism. So the SEAL, the surgeon, the fighter, the hedge fund broker, all of these people who deal with extraordinary volatility in their professions – 
the ones who are the best at what they do are the most well prepared for what they do. And if we speak towards the specific attributes, then fine, we're speaking towards the specific attributes. One individual has more resolve than another, another is more aggressive, another is more relentless in their pursuit, and so on and so forth. But none of which are synonyms for, for toughness. And it's, a, it's unfortunately that it has this toughness and mental toughness as science fiction are, are so popular in the common vernacular. So in, in the training of those qualities, it's the demands of the task relative to the, the qualities that you're trying to develop that matter far more than the lactic acid or the pain associated with the, the physical training being done. Let's let me answer that this way, because per, perhaps relentlessness. A, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way you phrased it is absolutely correct. Yet it's it's possible that some uh, some anaerobic lactic load might be appropriate, particularly and only if it's relevant to the sport activity. Yeah, because where where we would violate this essential criteria that I'm laying forth is if I, let's say we, we took, you know, pool, playing competitive pool, yeah. which has an extraordinarily low physical demand. If I'm looking to drill any one of these psychological attributes that may in another context qualify for an anaerobic lactic load, I'm certainly not going to introduce an anaerobic lactic load for the pool player. Yeah, yeah. That makes no sense because for the same reason that I have so much to criticize about the lack of sport coaching education it is the cost associated with these measures. So the physiological, the structural, the neuromuscular cost of some extreme anaerobic lactic load while for let's say a 400 meter runner could fit smoothly into their preparatory objectives because the 400 meter runner has arguably the highest anaerobic lactic demand of any athlete. Yeah. If we look at what the actual millimoles of blood lactate are in some of these 400 meter runners, they're, they're, they're some of the highest you see in any discipline. So if we're, if we're seeing an inability to deal with the, the, the physical experience of high levels of acidosis and positive hydrogen ions, et cetera, under hypoxic conditions, then clearly we're going to scale some introduction of the relevant preparatory mode of anaerobic lactic and certainly in the form of running. We're not going to put them on some concept two rower or the, you know, the, or the cycle ergometer because yeah. once again, now, now we've drifted far off and the cost that we are placing on their system is cannot be justified. And so – there's more than one way to utilize a physical measure and whether or not a physical measure at all is required, which brings us, which brings us to the discussion of once we, we, we irrefutably identify what are the markers of competitive success. So the sport structure and all that that describes. Now what we need to determine you know, there's nothing, there's nothing controversial about the, you know, the, the validity of minimum effective dose and don't do more than you have to. So through analytical intellectual discourse, we may then discover what is achievable solely on the basis of analytical intellectual discourse. Because if we determine, you know, on this basis of psychological preparation, if we determine, let's just use aggressiveness because we know how valuable aggressiveness is in, in so many different sporting contexts. And if we determine that not enough individuals objectively, there are, are there not enough, there's not enough aggression being demonstrated. Now, there's the question how to solve that problem. So yes, can I introduce a specific physical objective that satisfies let's say a specialized or competitive demand that requires aggression to be successful in the activity. Absolutely. But even better, if through conversation, 
I can stimulate the processes. And now I only need one of these specialized or competitive scenarios to assess whether it's been achieved. Yeah. So, right. And so that's a huge win if that's the case, because if we sit down with a few of these, whatever, rugby players, and we say, look, I want to, I want to show you, I want to show you on game film why I'm criticizing you for not being aggressive enough. Let's say during the ruck clean out. And I say, I'm looking at the film, you're looking at the film, and, and, and this is why I am criticizing you for not being aggressive enough because I want you to see how, how cautious you are and, and, and tepid and the, the, the lack of speed you're approaching the clean out, the breakdown, et cetera. And that way the player says, no, you're right. You know, I, 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 I can't argue. I, I, you're, po- you're pointing it out. I, I see that. So now I say, okay, well, first off, now let's, let's talk about that. To tell me what you're thinking in that moment. And so I'm going to utilize cognitive energy analytically, intellectually to see if we can solve that problem. Because if that individual says, you know what, as is often the case when I consult with athletes, so often it's, man, I've never heard anybody say it that way before. So let's say they say that, man, I haven't heard anybody say that way, that way. you know, care if, if I had a, you know, if, if I had a quid for every time I've heard, I've never heard anybody say it like that before. The, the pond know, is we, pretty I, weak right now. <laughs> I, I'd still be, you know, we'd be yeah, flying, yeah. <laughs> be flying private to visit each other every other month. <laughs> so say they say that yeah. and man, I've never heard you say about that before. Now we begin to talk about it and, and then through the discussion and maybe, you know, however many of these they realize, you know, I, I, I understand this so much more deeply now than I did before because I never heard a coach talk about this. I, I've got it. I've got it now. And I say, okay, now I want to I see it. So, so we've got it intellectually. Now let's see if you've really got it in action. And then all of a sudden, in, in the next uh, day of preparation, we go out and we're doing some of these specific drills that require aggression to be successful. And, the, and they go out there and they're just – they're transformed. Well, what a huge win that is because the structural neuromuscular impact of their learning was zero. Yeah. Now for some people it's not good enough and and they have to do the physical thing. If in fact it's a physical act that necessitates, let's say aggression, then there, there, there may come a, a limit. The limiting factor might be, okay, we've talked it to death. There's no more that we're going to benefit from further discourse. Now we've got to go do the thing. And the point is individualization of approach, individualization of approach. You know, if we look at the nature of the Ivy League schools around the world and how so many of them feature much better ratios of instructors to students, small classroom sizes, Versus the, you know, in the U.S., let's say the huge state-run organizations that, you know, a, a, a first-year chemistry or psychology might have 600 students in it. Well, who statistically is going to have a, a better level of actual understanding? I'm not talking about being able to pass a test because, as David Deutsch has elucidated upon, Someone could score perfectly on a test and actually have very little knowledge on how to assimilate what they've learned into the real world. So if we talk about actual learning, understanding, good explanation and ability, we, we understand the advantage that the small classroom Ivy League has versus these 600 students, even if it's just this phenomenally knowledgeable instructor. Well, it's for the same reason why the individual instruction of preparatory elements that do not necessitate interaction for their development, because some do, you know, for example, if we're talking about the execution of a new tactical scheme, we're, we're dependent upon others in a team sport, for example. So there comes a point, and yes, we do have to have more than one of you doing this at the same time. For example, in rugby, if it's some phase play attack scheme, all right, I want to see the passing sequence that we've set up. And that, you know, you're not going to be passing it to yourself. However, there's a great deal 
that can be individualized in every, even in the tactical realm in the team sports that include tactics. And this is not addressed. And it's, and it's for the same reason why anybody under, you know, the students that benefit from having a private tutor are demonstrating to the world that some people require more attention than others to achieve the same result. That being said, even the highest aptitude individual benefits more greatly from the individualized approach. So even if it's the person who's a magna cum laude at the state university, that even though the bulk of the classes they were in, they were just a needle in a haystack in terms of the amount of students, they have such a high aptitude, they, they at least, you know, they did what they had to do to pass the tests, which again, we must distinguish from true knowledge. That being said, that individual, that magna cum laude individual would be even more knowledgeable if it was them and, and one professor for four years. Yeah. And, you know, professors just rotated in and out depending upon their specialty knowledge. So no one denies that. And th- what makes this especially almost criminal due to the negligence involved in sport is the higher the level you go in sport, especially team and and combat sports, you've got coaches and staff coming out of your ears in terms of the amount of coaches in any given organization of a, I mean, you could look at a national, in the national basketball association where you've got so few players on a team and on the court in any given contest, they still have huge staffs skill and development and psychology, you know, so there's no shortage of bodies. But again, you know, the the opening quote of the book and the one that I've said so often from David Deutsch is the limiting factor is not resources for they are plentiful, but knowledge, which is scarce. It always comes back to knowledge. The limiting factor is always knowledge because you can prepare, you can prepare Almost, let me think about it. Pick a sport and I'll show you how little you need in terms of resources to prepare to world-class levels. You see, you see the, the Olympic training centers in Cuba, China, yes. you know, Iran and weightlifting and so on. Yes. I mean, what, what do we need in rugby? We need something to function as goalposts and we need, we need at least a ball. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and if it's international, well, we have to have some means of you know, the air travel. But in terms of, you know, and again, pick the sport, all you need for preparatory for, you know, so if, if we, if we eliminate, okay, yes, if we're traveling in air, air travel, okay, that requires planes and the resources there, but in preparation, you, you only need the sport implement. That's it. So if you're a pole vaulter, yes, you need the proper poles, shorter and longer ones, depending upon your stage of development, a landing pit. All these different sports, an American football, a football, a rugby ball, whatever, a, a hockey puck, ice sticks, skates, you know, hockey, hockey sticks, skates, the, 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 the amount that is necessary but falsely understood because look at high-performance rugby. Everyone's under the illusion of, oh, we, got to, we have to have a high-performance f- facility in order to be competitive. If we don't have this facility, how are we going to compete with the world's best? That's an example of limited thinking. The same limited thinking we'd find is if you have no carpentry carpentry skills and then we task you with building a house with a, 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 a usable but limited toolkit, you can say, oh, this isn't achievable. I can't build a house. I don't have a power saw. How, what am I going to build? Meanwhile, the master carpenter comes around and says, you know what? We were building houses for many, many decades, if not centuries, before power tools came along. But you have to have knowledge. And so it's not only the fact that we're using a handsaw, but this is the knowledge that you have to do this thing without relying upon the technology. Similarly, we go around these sports that are such overblown manifestations of money spent on the myth that you need the latest and greatest, whether it's technology or hardware or what have you. And it's false re- re- relative to what is essential. So 
the question is, did I forget anything regarding that information-packed question? That <laughs> <laughs> this psychological with the physical, the the, the youth. Oh, um, the, no, I think we got it. Um, so, without obviously naming names of who you're working with or specifics, but you're you're consulting with a number of high-level clubs, and whenever you go into an organization. You are occasionally working against everything that has come before because of like ingrained paradigms of training and attitudes and so on. And naturally, when you when you change how people work, you can lead them down the garden path logically. But then, you know, if A equals B, B equals C and so on, and you say, right, do we agree we're going to do this? Sometimes they'll still say no. And it's because their their emotion, their, their decision making is uh, underpinned by emotion how do you satisfy that emotional side whilst creating the cultural change that you want because you know they say like you get more you catch more flies with sugar than you do with shit if you just say no you're wrong this is logical we're going to do it this way you, you may kind of lose the change that you want because you, you don't have people on board so very good question in this realm of consulting, yeah, it's, it's it's true that I've consulted and I continue to with with some of the you know the biggest names in different professional sports, but in no way is that correlated, let's say, with those teams being, let's say, successful for for the reasons you mentioned. The you know the age old analogy: you can lead a horse to water, can't make it drink, and so on. And so, this is why. I mean, before I get into the nuts and bolts of answering your question, this is why I hesitant. You know, you and I have talked. We've been friends for a while. I don't even mention my the scope of my professional work when I'm talking to people because it has no significance. Despite the fact, I should rephrase, it has no significance in terms of my understanding of what knowledge actually means because, as David Deutsch has expounded upon, experience is in no way a synonym for knowledge. So if I tell someone that I consult for every premiership team and every super rugby team and every NFL team and every NBA team and the whole bit, the bulk of the world, I've got their complete attention, but for the wrong reasons entirely, because I've told them nothing about my knowledge and the perception that through this experience you have knowledge is 100% false. Going back to the analogy I gave of the person with low cognitive ability that travels the world spending time with the most knowledgeable people, but because they're limited by their cognitive ability, they can never have the knowledge of someone who's got a higher level of cognitive ability exposed to the same sets of resources. And so this is the reason why a coach that's been 20 years coaching 20 years and of those 20 years had an 80% rate of championship success, that still tells me zero with respect to if they're competent or not. Because as I discuss in the book, there is no one-to-one relationship in sport. Because as soon as we enter another intelligent being into the equation, it's no longer one-to-one. Because if I'm Fred Flintstone and I clone Usain Bolt when he's 15 years old, Fred Flintstone is going to have a world champion sprinter. Yeah. Well, why is that? It's Fred Flintstone. He's got no competence as a track coach. Well, the reason why is because he's got this person who's, uh, you know, been engineered to do it well. You know, or if I'm the Fred Flintstone swim coach and I've got the clone of Michael Phelps when he's 15 years old. Michael Phelps is still going to be a world champion. Because the amount that would have to be wrong to undo what he's his genetic potential and his work ethic has in store would be so colossal that it would probably even surpass what the world's population of incompetent coaches d- dishes out on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> the amount that would have to be wrong to eliminate that, that ability. And so this is important, very, very important to make this distinction. And so it's, so yes, I consult for these various clubs, but that in no way says anything about the knowledge that I have and, and nor does it mean that it'll automatically be a success because as a consultant, I do not have autonomous control over the organization. I'm, I'm simply the bearer of information. Take, take it or leave it. Now to answer your question, because I'm so short winded and concise in all my responses, uh, 
the, the, the nature of overcoming barriers that might be rooted in ego or emotional attachments, convictions to particular ways of doing things, and then I come in and I drop a bomb on everything. I, for me, I'm always... I'm always maintaining objectivity. So, so while, while you and I are talking here, and granted, more than a few people might listen to this, there's a difference between you and I talking and me taking liberty with some of the language that I use. You know, we're laughing. We, we point out a criticism. We say, oh, that's absurd. I can't believe there's this many dodos doing this. When I'm in the, in the professional context of consulting, I'm not using inflammatory language. I'm not making personal attacks. It's simply objective, unbiased, impartial information because I'm, I'm simply presenting these what is what is factual, what it, what is what is known, broadly accepted in so many other fields outside of sport. And by staying close to that, you in my experience, one is able to really not only diffuse, but, but not even get yourself into hot water because, you know, similarly, say you take someone who's really got poor control of their emotions and they're, they fly off the handle at any given thing. If they Google a question and they receive the answer via internet search, provided they've asked it appropriately to some you know, universally recognized, uh, competent information resource. Uh, all right. So let, if I'm really emotionally out of control and I go to Oxford dictionary, looking up the definition of a word, I'm getting back an objective response. So all of the coaches of the world who have an anxiety attack every time there's an unfavorable, in their view, officiating call made, those same coaches are unlikely to have the same emotional outburst when they look up a word in the Oxford Dictionary. They're just getting the objective thing that they were looking for. Now, similarly, if they just get the objective thing in a consultation, it may not be what they were looking for because the irony is, and, and again, I'm just, uh, I might as well be a, maybe I'm David Deutsch's biggest fan, but you find me someone else who can, who can rival his level of information understanding and, you know, uh, I'll be impressed. So the more expertise you have, the more prone you are to confirmation bias. So there's this huge conundrum involved with it, there's even less reason for me to take seriously the fact that you've been doing what you've been doing for 20 years because the likelihood of what you do being restricted to an information domain, d domain extraordinarily narrow is infinitesimal. I can't think of a profession in which the totality of what need be understood to constitute true expertise is so narrow that it could easily be possessed by so many different individuals that I can't think of one because because of the influence of so many other fields of knowledge that are relevant on so many perceived specialties. And so even if I'm consulting with this individual who has all this, you know, these years and they think they might be on the right track for the information they want to hear, provided I offer it without emotional attachment and without partiality, and I simply am sharing what is known and what the most prevailing theories agree upon and what is more closely linked to success in other disciplines that, that are subject to so many more rigorous sets of checks and balances to achieve international success. You know, for, uh, where, uh, so I have a partial where I am biased is I'm very biased towards the knowledge of physicists. And the reason why is because I'm I, I have yet in my in my in my personal experience, I've yet to encounter one who I wasn't just 
thoroughly enamored with and listening to them describe their profession and the knowledge that's involved. And certainly we could talk about different fields of physics and so on. But I'm, that's a bias that I have, but I do not allow that to, to generate bias in my consultant. It's simply a reference point that I have. So if I'm presenting unbiased information in coming from fields, because I'm often referencing physics, well, we know the rigors associated with achieving uh, particularly, you know, in international notoriety for physics theories or experimental results. Uh, these, these, these rigors are profound. They're profound. I mean, just the academic study, you know, right or wrong, wh whether there's a myopic viewpoint in the, in, in the university setting, just, just the rigors associated with testing well enough and going through the PhD process and becoming competent, they're extraordinary. The mathematics, the, the conceptual necessities. So it's one of those, you know, it's, a, it's in a small, it's in a small minority of other professions scientific or not that share the same type of rigors associated with achieving high level. So if, if we take models, preparatory models from these professions that have such stronger rigors, the, the rigorous nature of becoming one of these professionals and particularly a high level professional in one of these domains, it, it is entirely un uncontroversial to say that if we apply this to this much more parochial endeavor, which is to say sport preparation, that it won't be an instant success. And, and there's so many of these, you know, even from one sport to the next, as you know, that I've often, you know, due to my track and field knowledge and, and experience, but more so because of the knowledge, because as I said, experience means nothing in the context of knowledge. The there's so many lessons to take from track and field, you know, as, as you stated in a previous conversation, we had the, the stopwatch sports or the, you know, the, or the tape measure sports where the room for error is minuscule. And so at, at the, the height of coaching domains in these disciplines that are decided by such small margins in terms of fractions of a second fraction, you know, centimeters, et cetera. Uh, we can take principles from those. We don't even have to go outside of sports to 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 affect and not even other sports, because as soon as we identify incompetence in track and field, then we're simply referencing another track coach in the same discipline that there's so much to learn from. And so the you know, the the way that these models of success are generated, no matter what they are, whether it's based on something physical or analytical, we look at what the world's elite has to offer. And we look at what they have in common and that's where we develop the model. And then it only serves each individual well to maintain the mindset of a scientist, an open, you know, an optimistic, open-minded scientist that accepts the fact that no matter what the prevailing theory is today, it might get turned on its head tomorrow. And that's a great thing. Because as soon as a problem is solved, we've simply revealed a bigger problem. And again, this is more David Deutsch. I, I, cannot, I cannot suggest highly enough to any listener to listen to everything that has been spoken and written by physicist David Deutsch, if, that, if I haven't already made that clear. So, so, so. On the basis of what is, is said here, we then have to ask ourselves, to what extent is this type of dialogue, is this type of knowledge, or the practices resultant of this type of knowledge present in the world of sport? And the, the unequivocal answer to that is not even close. And, uh, you know, both of us have, have, have traveled and worked around the world and here we are, you know, we, we, we couldn't, we almost couldn't be farther apart geographically as we speak now. And through, through, you know, I can speak for, through my consulting, it's touched essentially, yes, every continent 
I've consulted on every continent except Antarctica, but there's not a whole lot of sports in Antarctica. And so as a, as a consultant, I, I have a certain level of awareness of what's happening and where. And that's why I can, I can state without, without any subjectivity that one would be hard-pressed to find a sports organization anywhere in the world operating on the basis of these things that we're talking about. So with regard to athlete buy-in, certain athletes wanting to have their favorite toys that placate them, that's what they want, but not necessarily what's right for them or what they need. Do you think it's extremely important to have a a top-down buy-in from what you're talking about with a head coach or a general manager that understands and effectively puts a marker down for everyone else, everyone else in the organization and says, right, this is the direction we're going to go. It's, it is essential that every single cultural precept is instantiated, is personified by the head without question 100%. That must be demonstrated from the top down. However, I must distinguish between the the head authority figure. Actually, I'll, I'll use that word loosely in authority because authoritative measures of learning are are wrong. This is more David Deutsch, by the way. I, I, I will not. I will not convey information without giving credit to the individual who I learned it from. And so, criticism, criticism is what is is irrefutably the leading marker for for knowledge, for new knowledge, understanding, criticism. So, despite the fact that we have this individual who is most in charge in terms of leadership. In no way must there be any sort of authoritarian climate to the organization. Yeah. To the, to the contrary, there must be one of criticism. So, yes, we plan, you know, as I discuss in the book, we have the sports engineering, we have the global management, we, we've, got our, we've got the main dynamics in, in place, but they are not fixed. They must be fluid because if anyone – in the hierarchy has the ability to contribute successfully, they must be given the opportunity to do so, which is to say they must be given the opportunity to criticize. Now I, I give an example of this in the book is the after action review, which I wrote an article on a couple years ago, explaining how it works in many of the world's military. I'm using the example based upon the individuals who have a closer relationship in tier one special operations, in which case the after action review is their vehicle for criticism, in which case it does not matter what your rank is. When the after action review occurs, everyone has the opportunity to criticize. Now, the word now criticize must be understood as not merely some derogatory attack, but, but rather a questioning followed with either more questions or perhaps a solution. That's important because otherwise an unknowledgeable listener might say, wait a minute, is James saying that if my coach says we should do this, I should tell him to go fuck himself? No, 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 no. That, that's not what I mean by criticize. But what I do mean is, okay, okay, care. What you've presented here, I, I don't agree with. I believe, I believe there's, a, there's a better approach. So if I'm offering a conjecture, then it's incomplete knowledge. Then, it, then the conjecture is, care you've suggested here, uh, man, I, it, that, that does not add up well relative to the collective what is known in, in the world objectively as it relates to the subject matter. I propose we do this, even though I cannot prove to you that it's the way to do it. However, if I'm able to explain to you well enough, again, the, good, the, the criteria for good explanation is that it is hard to vary while still explaining what it purports to explain, more David Deutsch, then 
then then you must do due to preserving objective you know criticism you must then accept that as you know what James okay what you've offered it's not a hundred percent it's it's not been proven elsewhere but you've you've sold me on your explanation that's a that's an excellent explanation let's let's give it a let's give it a try yeah that that's how the conjecture can turn into new knowledge alternatively let's say I just know for certain a better solution because it's already been established somewhere else past the criterion of you know objective and good explanations and all the rest then then I can simply present the new knowledge that I already have the point is I must be given the opportunity to do so and whoever that senior leadership figure is must be open and encourage the criticism encourage the criticism because with all the information and all the knowledge that's available in the world today due to the accessibility with the, the internet it, it is not conceivable that any single individual could be in possession of all that is knowable it's just not achievable there's too much so the thought that the the leader of the sports organization could in any way embody the 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 end line through which all things are filtered and then ultimately they'll make the proper decision. The only way they could embody that is if they fulfill what I outline is my criteria for a competent, qualified coach. That's the only way. Otherwise, you'd be limited by that person's propensity to embrace the bias that they have, consciously or not, by virtue of all their years' experience. Yeah. So uh, where can people get the book? Amazon. What's the title? The Governing Dynamics of Coaching. Cool. Well, I'll, um, I'll put a link up on uh, this podcast and the blog so people can get a copy. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. Cool. Let me just stop recording.